0: there. Welcome to the 10-minute recap where I give a quick overview of all of our assigned Bible reading for the week. So the goal is to get you caught up on your reading so that you can successfully make it through the entire Bible. Now, this week's reading was Judges 10 to 1 Samuel 12. Here we go. In Judges 10, we're told a minimal amount of information about two judges of Israel. First, Tola, who lived in the hill country of Ephraim. He led Israel for 23 years. Second, we're told of Jair from Gilead, who led Israel for 23 years and seems to have exerted some kingly type of control because we're told he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, a number that suggests multiple marriages, maybe to mark peace treaties or covenants, and the donkeys suggesting kingly respect and or power. Now, the rest of chapter 10 is focused on introducing the problem that God would answer by raising up the judge. Jephthah. So the problem is that Israel began serving Baal, Ashtoreth, the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammon, and Philistia. There are really no words for this. It's just, it's just bad, bad news. Israel was freely breaking their covenant with God very directly. So God allows them to be shattered and crushed as the text says by the Philistines and Ammonites for 18 years. Finally, they cry out to God and God essentially says, well, you don't serve me anymore. Why don't you just ask your gods for help? Which of course they already had been and it wasn't working. So Israel gets the point and puts away its idol worship. And so God begins to act on their behalf. When the Ammonites prepare for battle, Israel assembles for war and begins looking for a leader. Judges chapter 11 then introduces us to Jephthah, and it's really not a flattering picture that it paints. He is, however, a mighty warrior, and he rises to lead Israel in battle when he's promised the leadership by them. Jephthah's message to the king of the Ammonites is recorded in this chapter, and it it contains some technical errors about Israel's history, but also Jephthah's, he he ironically misnames Ammon's god. The god of Ammon was Molech. But Jephthah says it's Chemosh, which was the god of Moab. Now, this is ironic because the Ammonite god famously accepted and even demanded child sacrifice, which of course, of course Jephthah promises to God. He says, whoever steps out of my house when I return, I will sacrifice to you. He He promises that to God, but just as Jephthah misnames the God of Ammon, Jephthah misunderstands the nature of Israel's God who would never accept child sacrifice. Now, notably, the Ammonite God did accept child sacrifice. So not only is Jephthah confused about the nature of God and the nation's gods, he's trying to serve the true God like the nations serve their gods. It's not a good scene. Judges 12 shows um, another bloody aftermath to Jephthah's leadership. The tribe of Ephraim was enraged that Jephthah didn't include them in the battle, and horrifically, 42,000 Ephraimites end up being killed. And we're told that Jephthah led Israel for six years. Chapter 12 also briefly tells us about the judges Ibzan, who led for seven years, Elon for 10 years, and Abdon for eight years. Judges 13 begins the story of Samson. Now in this chapter, he's born as a miracle baby. So Israel had been oppressed by the Philistines for 40 years and the angel of the Lord appeared to Samson's barren mother and promises her a child who she must raise as a Nazarite. So dedicated specially to God. It's interesting to see that the angel of the Lord has to explain to her what the Nazarite vow entails. Now this may be to emphasize how apostate Israel was at the time. They didn't even know for sure what a Nazarite vow entailed. Judges 14 shows us Samson's desire to marry a Philistine, his killing of a lion, and Samson's rage during what was supposed to be his wedding feast, but instead ends with Samson killing 30 Philistines and storming away without his wife. In Judges 15, when Samson goes back for his wife much later, she's been married to someone else, and in retaliation, Samson burns a bunch of Philistinian farmland, a death sentence for the people because their crops are gone, and then the Philistines execute Samson's not-wife, once-betrothed wife, and her family for Samson's crime. Samson then begins a war on the Philistines, which sees him leading Israel as judge for 20 years. Judges 16 contains more exploits and misadventures of Samson, including how he falls in love with the Philistine Delilah, who not surprisingly sells him out to the Philistines when she learns that if she cuts his hair, his Nazarite vow is officially over and he'll lose his strength. When Samson is captured, he's blinded by the Philistines and ends up pulling down a temple of Dagon on top of himself to kill the many Philistines who are inside of it. Judges 17 continues the theme of the apostasy of Israel. This time we see a man named Micah establishing an idolatrous shrine and a Levite agrees to become this shrine's priest. Now, ironically, Micah sees the finding of a Levi- Levite to be his priest as a blessing from God on his idols and shrines. Chapter 18 then continues the story. So the tribe of Dan steals the shrine and the idols and the Levite becomes their official priest and he's pretty proud of it. Shockingly, we learn who this apostate priest is. It's the descendant of Moses himself. Judges 19 continues to shock. We see that the town of Gibeah in the territory of Benjamin, has become just as bad as the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah back in Genesis. So after a horrific ordeal, a woman dies from her injuries that the men of Gibeah inflicted on her. Her husband, who's finally appalled, cuts up her body as a sign and sends it throughout Israel as a call to action. In Judges 20, the Israelites gather at Mizpah, all the tribes except Benjamin, because they're the tribe that is guilty of this offense. Israel decides that they must destroy the city of Gibeah for its crimes, like Sodom and Gomorrah. But when Benjamin will not allow this, a civil war breaks out. There are three brutal battles in which most Benjamites are killed. 600 Benjamite men are left hiding out at the Rock of Ramon. Now Judges 21 closes out the book first with Israel's intention to let the tribe of Benjamin die out by refusing to let any of the surviving men marry uh, any of the Israelite women. But eventually Israel regrets this choice and how they fix it it's terrible. It's sin upon sin. The Israelites murder the city of Jabesh-Gilead, all except for the unmarried women, whom they give to the Benjamites as wives. But there aren't enough women to go around, so they advise the Benjamite men to go to Shiloh, where the tent tabernacle of God is set up. And the women of Shiloh go out to celebrate festivals to God. And when they do, the Benjamites kidnap women for their wives. And the chapter ends the book with this very fitting phrase. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Okay, now on to a bit of a happier tale, the book of Ruth. In Ruth chapter one, we have a family crisis. The men of a household all die, and the mother, Naomi, is left only with her foreign daughter-in-law, Ruth, to try to provide for her. Naomi's main issue is that her children are dead, so there's no one to inherit her husband's land in Israel. And she's too old to have another child who could inherit the land. So it will be reabsorbed into her husband's tribe. But if a relative would be willing to take Ruth on in levirate marriage, a child could be created to inherit the land. Now that child would legally belong to Naomi's dead husband's family though. So levirate marriage was actually a significant financial drain on the relative who married the widow. In Ruth chapter two, we're introduced to kind and godly Boaz, who offers protection to Ruth for her godly character. Now in Ruth three, Naomi has Ruth ask Boaz to redeem her. And in Ruth four, we see Boaz redeeming Ruth after a closer relative rejects the proposal. We're also given the reason for the Bible recording Ruth's story at all. She's a Moabite woman after all, not an Israelite but it turns out that she was King David's great-grandmother. That brings us to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 1 records the miraculous birth of Samuel to a barren mother. Once again, the baby's called to be a Nazarite, and once he's weaned, Samuel goes to live at the tent tabernacle in service to God. 1 Samuel 2 records his mother, Hannah's, prayer of praise. And we're told that Eli's sons, who was the current high priest, his sons are evil and there's a prophecy against them. 1 Samuel 3 records how God called Samuel to be a prophet and leader in Israel. And he's given God's word against Eli's house. 1 Samuel 4 records this word of judgment actually coming true. So the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines in a battle and Eli's sons are killed. The news of this is too much for elderly Eli and he falls down and dies. In 1 Samuel 5, the Ark causes physical health problems and plagues for the Philistines. Then 1 Samuel 6 records the Philistines deciding to get rid of the Ark. They send it away on an unmanned cart pulled by oxen with some offerings of gold for good measure. The oxen bring it back to Israel, specifically to the city of Beth Shemeth. Shemesh. Now, ironically, the citizens of this Levitical city do not know how to handle the Ark. They end up opening it, and so some of them are struck down by God. And in a panic, they also get rid of the Ark. They send it to Kiriath-Jerim. In 1 Samuel 7, we see Samuel leading Israel as prophet and judge. He rallies Israel to get rid of their idols, and we're told of his yearly circuit. He would judge at Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and his home at Ramah. In 1 Samuel 8, we see Israel being very concerned about their future. There's an invading enemy army, Samuel's getting older, and his sons are evil. So Israel asks for a king like the nations that surround them. 1 Samuel 9 has us meet God's first choice for king, Saul. An unlikely, rather suspicious choice because he's a Benjamite from that evil city of Gibeah. Now 1st Samuel 10 records Samuel anointing Saul as king in a private setting, miracles that then happened to him, and then anointing Saul in a public setting before all the leadership of the nation. 1st Samuel 11 records Saul's first successful mission as king. The spirit of God empowers him to save the city of Jabesh-Gilead, also an interesting first city to save, Remember that Jabesh Gilead was the city assaulted by Israel to provide wives for the tribe of Benjamin, whom Saul is a descendant of. As a result of saving Jabesh Gilead, all of Israel reconfirmed Saul as their king. And finally, for today, 1 Samuel 12, records Samuel's farewell speech. He isn't actually going anywhere, but he's stepping down as the leader of the nation. He's abdicating his power to Saul. So instead, Samuel's going to focus on his role as the prophet of God. That's all for this week. Pop your comments down below, any questions that you have, and until next week, happy reading.